Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Since the start of the pandemic, we've been checking in with local leaders across the country about how they're handling the public health crisis caused by COVID-19. We know that the crisis has taken a toll on the health and economies of their cities and towns, but it's also created a lot of confusion about how to ensure that voters can safely cast ballots in the upcoming election. No state wants to look like Wisconsin did this April, with voters waiting in long lines to access a limited number of open polling places and a vote-by-mail system that overtaxed the Postal Service and local election offices. Milwaukee Election Commission Executive Director Neil Albrecht says he's filing a request for an investigation by the U.S. Postal Service to find out why absentee ballots issued on March 22nd and 23rd didn't make it to voters. Recently, California became the first state to modify their plans for the general election after Governor Gavin Newsom issued an executive order that said the state's 20 million-plus registered voters would receive ballots in the mail. Now, California already has generous absentee voting rules, and during the 2018 midterm, 65% of registered voters voted by mail. Even so, there are still a lot of challenges to implementing such a sweeping change in America's most populous state. So I called up the person in charge of making sure that this all works. California Secretary of State Alex Padilla. It's all hands on deck time uh, to ensure that we deliver an accessible, secure and safe election this November. Uh, And a great first step is the governor's recent executive order uh, directing counties to send every registered voter a ballot in the mail in advance of the November election. Uh, So here's the good news. We're not starting from scratch. Uh, Vote by mail has been growing in popularity in California for years. In fact, in the Mm -hmm. March primary, about 75% of voters received their ballot in the mail. But uh, going from 75 to 100% uh, in the largest state in the nation with more than 20 million voters is no small task. And so we are going to be working in partnership with every single county in the state uh, to help them uh, expand vote-by-mail capacity and ramp up the efforts, whether it's printing ballots, uh, mailing ballots, processing ballots that come back by mail uh, at a level that we haven't seen before. Uh, And it will require additional resources. So while we put the plans and logistics in place, uh, we are aggressively advocating for additional state and federal funds to help counties Uh, cover the costs that are going to be required, uh, all at a time when the economy is struggling and revenues for state and local governments are falling off a cliff. Right. So right now, as a county official, can I count on the state basically making up for whatever it costs me to send all these voters ballots? And and do I have to include, as a a, uh, county official, a prepaid stamp as well. Uh, So yes, in California law already requires that return postage for vote by mail ballots is prepaid. So it's uh, saving Mm. a significant expense for for county governments, uh, but it's also empowering for voters to not have to scramble for stamps. Uh, One less obstacle between them and exercising their right to vote. Uh, Look, the good news is even with these uh, unexpected but important uh, costs, uh, I do believe federal and state dollars can cover the lion's share for counties. Uh, There are uh, recent appropriations uh, by Congress, for example, in the CARES Act 
400 million dollars for states uh, to safely administer elections in 2020. Uh, California's share is about 39 million dollars uh, and so a lot of that will be used to help counties make the necessary changes for the November election. Uh, in recent years California uh, has invested state dollars through our budget into election modernization. So uh, counties are not going it alone, at least not in the state of California, uh, but we do have work to do to identify additional resources for voter education. Try as we might to expand vote by mail and even provide safe in-person opportunities to vote uh, before election day. Uh, it's all for not if voters don't know of the opportunities they have to take advantage of. So voter education and outreach is going to be a significant effort as well. What about voters who just don't want to vote by mail? What options do they have? Look, so uh, in California, yes, the governor signed an executive order directing counties to send every registered voter a ballot in the mail in advance of the election. Uh, but let's not confuse this for an all vote by mail only election. We are committed to maintaining as many safe in-person voting opportunities both on and before election day for voters who need assistance or for voters who need to participate in same-day registration. Uh, so let's provide multiple safe opportunities for voters to choose how they prefer to cast their ballots, uh, but make sure that they are safe. And a big part of the formula is this. The more voters we can get to participate early, whether it's by mail or safely in person, will mean shorter lines, smaller crowds, and a healthier environment at voting locations on election day. Let's talk about another um, issue that Republicans specifically bring up a lot, including some Republicans from California, like the minority leader uh, in the House, Kevin McCarthy, talking about this issue uh, they call ballot harvesting, which is the ability for anyone in California to go and pick up ballots, vote by mail ballots, and return them. And their argument is there are no real rules around this. This is rife with the potential for fraud. What can you say to reassure Republicans or, uh, quite frankly, any other voters that somebody who's coming around picking up ballots and dropping them off is not uh, going to lead uh, to either questions about fraud or fraud uh, specifically? Uh, let's look at the facts. Uh, we do take uh, voter fraud and potential for voter fraud very seriously. Uh, and the facts are clear. Voter fraud in America is exceedingly, exceedingly rare. Any accusations that uh, vote by mail is not safe and secure uh, are false, are baseless. And if we want to start with the uh, vote suppressor in chief, uh, they're uh, outright lies and nothing but a pretext for voter suppression. You know, Trump has railed uh, from the Oval Office about vote by mail when he himself is a vote by mail voter. So here's the truth about vote by mail. It's a proven practice that's not only safe and secure and efficient for administrators, it's tremendously convenient for voters and has helped increase voter turnout rates. Uh, and not just in blue states like California, but in red states and purple states across the country. Uh, so to suggest that uh, vote by mail is not inherently safe uh, is not only false, frankly, it's also an attempt to distract. Uh, going back to the uh, uh, 
attacks to vote by mail by Trump. Uh, he's clearly failed in responding to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, and he's uh, simply trying to change the subject and uh, undermine confidence in our elections as he's struggling with his re-election campaign. But the argument isn't just that about vote by mail, whether that is um, proper or fraud-free. Um, the question is, should there be limits on just who and how many ballots a person can pick up? In other words, should there be some limitations to the process of going and taking someone else's ballot and delivering it for them? So look, the, the, the law is very clear, uh, and we're talking federal voting rights uh, here. Uh, if you're 18 years or older and a citizen of the United States, with minimal exception, you have the right to vote with minimum with no unnecessary obstacles or barriers to prevent you from doing so so yes in california we have chosen to empower voters to decide for themselves either how to cast or return their vote by mail ballots or who they most trust to return their ballot for them and there's ample options for voters to consider uh, return postage is prepaid so you don't have to worry about stamps you can hand your ballot back to uh, the, the uh, letter carrier, if you'd like, to return your ballot for you. You can drop it off in person to any secure drop box weeks before the election or to any voting location convenient to you over the course of weeks leading up to the location. Or if a voter chooses, yes, to hand the uh, ballot to a relative, a neighbor, a friend, uh, to return their ballot for them if that's the voter's choice, but also note that there are safety measures in place, including uh, a signature. Vote-by-mail ballots, when returned, a voter must sign the outside of the envelope, and a signature check is one of the security mm -hmm. measures that we have in place to ensure that the ballot coming back indeed is coming back from the voter who's properly registered. All right. Well, Secretary Padilla, thank you again. All right. Thank you. Stay safe. Alex Padilla is California's Secretary of State. I thought it'd be helpful to understand what it is about California that makes it possible that so many people vote by mail and where there might be some snags under this new system. So I called up John Myers. He's the Sacramento Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times. Quite simply, I think it was a, a, a matter of necessity when you when you look at how big the state is and you look at some of the you know, you match up where the voters are to where the coronavirus problems have been most acute. And certainly Los Angeles County comes to everybody's mind. Mm. Uh, there were real concerns about bringing an election forward in the traditional manner. And I have to tell you. Californians saw that video, those images of people standing in line in Wisconsin and things like that during this coronavirus pandemic. And they really were worried about this. And so you saw a movement from local elections first, uh, local elections officials, I should say, first on to state lawmakers and ultimately the governor saying, yes, we've got to take action. Had the governor not done it on his own, the California legislature was poised to enact something similar to that for November. But here we are. Uh, first time in state history. Well, every ballot, well, every voter, I should say, will be mailed a ballot. This is a state, though, that already is pretty comfortable voting by mail. Yeah, it's a good point. We really are well poised for it uh, in this March presidential primary, there was something to the magnitude of about 75% of uh, the voters were sent a ballot in the mail. 
and easily somewhere around uh, north of 70% cast a ballot by mail. And that's a that's a big change. I mean, there are a couple of things that are driving that really quickly. The first one is California uh, was one of the first states to encourage people, to allow people to vote absentee um, for any reason, not to have an excuse like the old days of I'm sick or I'm away from home or something like that. We've had that that in place since 2002. That has driven the numbers toward people who are permanent vote by mail. And second, we have a number of counties that are moving away from the traditional election model into this model that's more like Colorado and other states where you have vote centers, these uh, one-stop shopping kind of voter registration places that you can do all these things up before election day, including casting ballots. And they all get mailed ballots. That's part of the state law that does that. So we have a pretty robust system. There are still communities where uh, people like to vote in person and where they vote in person a lot. Los Angeles County, again, is one of those. Um, but so we were well on the way. But still, this is a, um, a mindset change, I would say, for November. And it's a logistics challenge, I think, for elections officials. There are almost 21 million voters in California. It's a lot of ballots. Well, John Myers, thank you so much for speaking with me and helping us understand this process. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. John Myers is the Sacramento Bureau Chief of the Los Angeles Times. This week gave us a preview of what California's new vote-by-mail policy could look like this fall. On Tuesday, California's 25th district outside of Los Angeles held a special election to replace Democrat Katie Hill. Every voter received a ballot in the mail. Republican Mike Garcia won that race. This is the first time a Republican has flipped a Democratic-held seat in the state in more than 20 years. And it flies in the face of warnings by President Trump and other Republicans that a vote-by-mail system will only help Democrats at the polls. David Wasserman is the House editor at the Cook Political Report and a colleague of mine, and he's been following both the special election and the dynamics surrounding vote-by-mail. I talked to him about what happened in California's 25th district this week and how that bodes for upcoming elections. You know, in California, every election rule was something that uh, Democrats have advocated for for years. Uh, every voter was automatically mailed a ballot. There was still same-day registration available at limited voting centers, and yet Republicans overperformed. Contrast that with Wisconsin last month in the state Supreme Court race there, where Democrats cried foul that uh, a number of rules made it quite onerous for voters to acquire an absentee ballot uh, at a time when many polling places were being condensed or closed. And yet Democrats actually turned out at a higher rate in that election. It helped that it coincided with a presidential primary. But the more liberal Supreme Court nominee there overperformed expectations. So it's really tough to predict which party will benefit from the imposition of certain election rules. It's a really good point because we've we've also had primaries that have occurred during this pandemic. Nebraska was one of those. There was a Democratic primary in a very competitive seat in Omaha. That was also mostly vote by mail, correct? And what did that tell us, if anything, about Democrats and their voter preference when we have a vote by mail system? I don't think it told us too much because the spending in that primary was pretty lopsided. Now, Mm -hmm. we did see an increase in turnout 
relative to past primaries in Nebraska, I think in part because of the amount of attention placed on the efforts that were being made uh, to accommodate uh, a large influx of absentee ballots compared to, to past cycles. So every voter in Nebraska was automatically mailed an application for an absentee ballot. That led to an increase in turnout over previous years when primaries might have been sleepier. I just want to go back to the special election in California because, as you've pointed out, this is the first time in more than 20 years that Republicans have flipped a seat in California from Democrat to Republican. And obviously, in the 2017-2018 election, we looked at some of these special elections where Democrats either came very close or they flipped Republican seats. And that turned out to be a harbinger of what was to come. Can we say that about this district, that Republican success here may mean that Republicans either are going to have a better than expected night in the House or might even do well in the November election? Well, Amy, what we what we know from having watched these special elections for so many years is that sometimes they blow with the national winds and sometimes they fly in the face of them. And I think this falls into the latter category. President Trump's approval rating is still very poor in most of these swing congressional districts. And there were three reasons why we saw uh, this outcome and why Republican Mike Garcia did so well. Um, The first is that Garcia is something of a political unicorn. He was running relentlessly as a former fighter pilot, and he's a son of a, a Mexican immigrant, in a district that's almost 40% Hispanic by population. And so, you know, as kind of a hometown son, he was a really excellent, uh, unique fit for the district uh, and represented a lot of things that uh, that Trump is not. Uh, second factor was that in these exurban type of seats, the pattern is that when you have a low turnout election like this special the electorate skews more towards longtime residents mm. who are more likely to be older, white, and Republican, whereas the lower propensity electorate, the people who came out to vote in 2016 and 18 when turnout was high, but were less likely to show up this time, uh, were younger, non-white, and tended to be newer residents to the district who might have been priced out by the high cost of living in L.A. So, The third factor was that voters who liked Mike Garcia thought he was well-credentialed but don't like Donald Trump. They could cast a vote for Garcia without jeopardizing the Democratic majority in the House that functions as a check on the president. Those last two factors, the turnout and the lack of kind of a national implication of the outcome, those will be different in November. And that gives Democrats some hope that they can win this seat back when we see a rematch between Garcia and Democrat Christy Smith in the fall. So if we broaden this out to national um, perspective for a second here, Dave, it's more it's more likely than not we're going to still have a lot of uncertainty about the pandemic and how safe people may feel actually going to the polls. More and more states saying uh, they want to see vote by mail, more robust vote by mail. What do you think that the ultimate uh, patchwork here is going to look like and what could it mean? I think patchwork is the right word because uh, state election rules already vary a great deal uh, between states. But in a situation 
where voters are more hesitant to show up in person at the polls, those rules uh, and the differences between them matter even more. There are still a number of states like Wisconsin that require submission of IFD or a witness signature. Even some states require a notary signature. And then there's the question of whether election administrators can handle uh, the volume of requests and, and can count them quickly to report results on election night. So this is going to require a massive investment. A lot of election offices are, are going to need state or federal dollars in order to conduct an election that provides everyone with access to the ballot. Well, Dave, we'll bring you back to talk a lot about this. Um, thank you so much for coming on and uh, helping us understand this a little bit better. Thanks so much, Amy. David Wasserman is the House Editor for the Cook Political Report. Here's something I've been thinking a lot about. In Wisconsin, the state motto, adopted in 1851, is simple. Forward. And lately, that motto is proving to be really prescient. Back in April, despite pleas from health officials and an attempt by Democratic Governor Tony Evers to delay it, the state went forward with its scheduled primary and in-person voting. And this week, they abruptly lurched forward in reopening when on Wednesday, the state Supreme Court struck down the stay-at-home order originally signed by the governor back in March. Evers tried to extend the original order until May 26, which prompted the lawsuit by the Republican-led legislature. And in a 4-3 ruling, the conservative-led court sided with Republicans. Appearing on MSNBC Wednesday night, Evers had this to say. We're in the Wild West, Allie. The Tavern League in this state has sent messages, uh, emails to their members saying, we're open tonight. Now, the Republican lawsuit asked the court to put the ruling on hold until they and the governor could agree on a plan for reopening. The court declined to do so, which meant that restrictions on businesses and gatherings were immediately dismissed. That prompted a lot of Wisconsinites to head to the bars. But the party's only raging in certain parts of the state. Local officials are still able to put their own orders in place. For example, the counties that house Milwaukee, Madison, and Green Bay still have stay-at-home orders. And as we've seen all across the country, some Wisconsin businesses are still reluctant to open their doors. The other reality is that Wisconsin, before this ruling on Wednesday, was one of just a handful of states that were in shutdown. In fact, the New York Times tracker finds that there are currently just eight states that are still shut down or have restricted movement. 34 states are partially reopened, and another eight are reopening soon. But ultimately, when it comes to bringing the country back to normal, Americans, not stay-at-home orders, will be the ultimate deciders. A survey done in late April by the Democracy Fund and UCLA Nationscape found that even Americans who say they're opposed to stay-at-home orders also say they aren't ready to go to malls or fly in airplanes. Instead, what we're likely to see over these next few weeks are people dipping their toes into the pool of socialization. Maybe going to see friends and family at their homes, showing up to a haircut, maybe with a mask, sitting outside at a restaurant. But the biggest test will be whether schools open this fall and if parents are willing to send their kids there even if they do. It's noteworthy, by the way, that the justices in Wisconsin lifted restrictions on businesses but kept school closures in place. 
A recent survey done by ABC Ipsos found that more than two-thirds of Americans with school-aged kids at home said they aren't currently willing to send their child back to school. And this exchange between Dr. Anthony Fauci and Senator Lamar Alexander at the Senate hearing this week is likely to give parents and school administrators pause. What would you say to the principal of a public school about how to persuade parents and students to return to school in August? Well, I would be very realistic and tell her that the idea of having treatments available or a vaccine to facilitate the re-entry of students into the fall term would be something that would be a bit of a bridge too far. Plus, any flare-up of the virus over the summer is only going to put more pressure on schools to stay closed through the fall semester. But it's also true that it will be all but impossible to have a fully functioning economy without schools and daycare open. And the president knows this too. That's why he expressed his displeasure at Fauci's testimony. In Pennsylvania on Thursday night, Trump told the Washington Examiner that, quote, you have to have the schools open in the fall. They have to be open. Which is why the next battle isn't gonna be at the bars, it will be over the classroom. We always wanna hear from you. Is your state opening up or planning to open soon? The number to call, 877-8-MY-TAKE. How will the easing of restrictions change your behavior? This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, a young writer attaches himself to a rising star in politics named Barack Obama. Interesting guy. Speaks in what sound like paragraphs. Very good posture, that guy. Enviable posture. <laughs> I am a writer, and I have this, this very slight hunch, and he has none of that. A political coming-of-age story from staff writer Vincent Cunningham, plus actor and director Bradley Cooper, all on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcast. The coronavirus pandemic wiped out a decade of job growth in the United States, almost overnight. More than 100,000 small businesses have closed for good, which is about 2% of all small business. Among restaurants, it's worse. Closer to 3% have closed for good. Beyond the devastation for people who own or are employed by these businesses, these losses have the potential to reshape the American economy and the middle class permanently. Heather Long is an economics correspondent at The Washington Post, and she's been tracking these changes since the onset of COVID-19. The big fear that I have, and I think we're starting to see it, we've seen early warning signs, is small businesses are going to have a really hard time making it through this situation. You need cash right now. Mm -hmm. You need a lot of cash to survive, you know, two months, maybe three months of being totally shut down. And then what's the summer? What's the fall going to look like? You know, these restaurant owners, among others, tell us, you know, what am I supposed to do with half my tables filled? Wasn't that what the PPP program was supposed to do? Was It was aimed specifically at keeping these small businesses afloat? Yes, I, I think Congress did try to help, and they thought they were providing record amounts of relief, over $700 billion. But there's one big catch, and that is in order for that money to be a grant. And that's what a lot of people need right now. They need a grant, not a loan that saddles mm. them with more debt that they're going to struggle to repay when they've only got half their tables filled or half the number of people can be in the gym as normal. Um, you know, so in order to be a grant, 75% of, of that money you're getting from the government is supposed to pay workers. 
Now that, you know, hey, that was meant to try to get people employed again. So you kind of understand where the lawmakers' hearts were. But the, the problem on the ground, particularly with small businesses, so think about your, your local restaurant, your local store, your gym, they probably have 10 employees, maybe 15, maybe 20. The bulk of their costs are rent, not employee costs. It's rent, insurance, buying the food, it's that overhead. And you know, they're telling you, look, the math just doesn't work here. I need more of that money to be able to pay my rent and my overhead, or I'm going to have to go out of business and I won't be able to bring my employees back. So they're just urging Congress, can you please make those restrictions less, less onerous? The other thing I'm wondering, Heather, given the drop off in small businesses and the fact that these bigger companies are probably going to get even bigger and be a bigger source of our economy. I'm wondering if that just further exacerbates this divide in our country, especially in certain parts of the country, rural versus urban. Does the loss of small businesses, for example, really hurt one region or one type of community more than another? Ooh, that is an extremely good point. And I think you're uh, 100% right. Uh, you know, we've all been through small towns and, and through more rural communities, some of which don't have a Walmart, you know, some of which don't have these types of uh, big retailers don't want to come in. And so they are even more dependent on these small businesses to provide basic needs and to be the heart of the community. You know, that's the pride of that community is that row of small businesses, that row of Main Street, that's their identity. And as those go away, that devastates those areas even more than it would in a maybe a more urban area. The other thing that has been somewhat remarkable, at least to me, is despite the incredible economic devastation that we've seen, I saw a poll out from the Kaiser Foundation a couple weeks back where 80-some percent of those folks who've been furloughed or laid off or maybe had their hours cut said they expect to get their job back. Is that realistic? And if so, who's it more realistic for? This is the heart of the matter. Uh, at first, we were all hopeful that, okay, the economy is only going to be closed a couple of weeks, then we're going to reopen. You know, People talked about the V-shaped recovery, the flipping <laughs> on the light switch again, whatever your favorite metaphor is. And that's why you see this optimism. The Washington Post poll found the same thing, 77% even at the end of April, still thought, hey, I think I'm going to be able to go back to my old job. Now, what's interesting, two things. Number one is uh, we know from other data that at the end of March, 90% of people were optimistic they could go back to their job. So we're already mm -hmm. starting to see that optimism fade a little bit. Um, but the second reality that I think is really scary is economists are telling us, and we heard the Federal Reserve chair Jerome Powell say it this week, the unemployment rate is likely to be high in this country a year from now. So some of those people are going to go back to work, but it looks more and more likely that half of them will not. And that is the biggest, most mm. scariest situation of all. He also made a comment about who's the most likely to be suffering, and it's for people on the sort of lower to mid-range in the economic scale. Is that right? That's right. I think people's jaws drop when they heard this. Among people who were working in February, almost 40% of those in households making less than $40,000 a year had lost a job 
in March. This reversal of economic fortune has caused a level of pain that is hard to capture in words as lives are upended amid great uncertainty about the future. 40% lost a job in March from those lower income workers. And we kind of, we sort of knew that in our gut feeling. When we look around, we think about who works in these restaurants, who works in these stores, who works at these gyms and yoga studios and coffee shops. You know, you sort of know these are tend to be lower, uh, lower wage workers. They tend to be younger workers. They tend to be women and they tend to be people of color. And we know from the jobs data that Hispanics you know, are suffering the most right now. Women are suffering more than men, younger people suffering more than middle-aged workers. But to hear that 40% really hits at home. Did the Fed chairman give any optimism in his remarks this week? Well, there's the good and the bad news. The good news of most economists and, and frankly, Wall Street types agree that this is probably the worst moment right now. But the big question, the important question, and the not-so-good news is there's a growing agreement that it's going to be slow to climb out of this low point, you know, that it's going to be a very slow recovery, and we're not going to get as many people back to work as we'd like. We're not going to see as many businesses bounce back as we need. Well, Heather Long, thank you again for helping us to understand this really important and scary moment in our time. Thank you. Heather Long is an economics correspondent at The Washington Post. So far, more than 30 million people have lost their jobs due to the pandemic. And according to a recent Washington Post-Ipsos poll, a majority of them, 77%, expect to get their jobs back when this is all over. But as we just heard from Heather Long, many of those temporary losses could become permanent. To talk about the differences between job loss and job destruction, I sat down with Betsy Stevenson, professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan's Ford School of Public Policy. Stevenson also served as an economic advisor and chief economist at the Labor Department during the Obama administration. And she points to three factors that will impact who gets brought back to work and who doesn't. How we're learning to use new technology. We're all making investments in new technology right now. And those investments will likely make us more likely to continue to use this new technology going forward. And that's going to shape our preferences and the things we want to do. We're also going to adjust to a new level of risk that may lead us to change the kinds of purchases we make, how we live our lives, how we spend, the things we want to consume. And then we're going to have income declines that ultimately change our our purchases. So you've got those three factors that are going to have a big impact on who gets brought back. So those income declines, that's probably the easiest thing for us to target. We need to support people's incomes so that they can afford to go out and make purchases again, um, when it's safe to do so. So the more we support people's incomes, and that's through things like the direct payments that we've already seen, um, that's through things like the extended unemployment insurance, um, ways to get money in the pockets of people who are really uh, gonna spend it will help support incomes. Similarly, we need to make sure that the jobs are there So trying to help make sure businesses have access to the loans that they need to survive um, 
is a way to help preserve jobs. But it's important to realize that part of what we're going to do to help increase employment is going to be addressing the public health crisis. Because otherwise, we're going to make personal decisions. And those personal decisions are going to be a reflection of what we see as the risk. So the more that you know, we hear just open up and what will be will be, the more people will pull back and make their own personal consumption decisions, reflecting a world with very heightened risk. The more we can make people feel safe, the more they'll go back to consuming things that are similar to what they were doing before. Right. And it looks like if you just look at the polling, the things people are the most worried, they say that they're the most worried about or the least likely to do, let's put it that way, get in an airplane, go to a live sporting event or something that has a big crowd, a concert or something like that. But you make a case about just going to the dentist or seeing a dental hygienist, right? And depending on, again, your own personal comfort level with that, how does it impact the life of this dental hygienist? Like walk us through, if if tomorrow your state says, you know what, you can go get your haircut, you can go to your dentist, you can go to your healthcare provider, you know, you need social distancing, you need masks, etc. But you are free to do these things. We can walk through dental hygienist or haircut and you sort of get to the same kind of calculus. Mm -hmm. The first is if we have less income, if people, uh, for those people who've lost jobs and have lost their dental insurance, um, the dentist has become more expensive. For those people who were always paying for the dentist out of pocket, but they have less income, Uh, that is now likely to be something they try to spend less on. So income is going to reduce demand for dental services. It's also the case that we may feel that going to the dentist is a, something that's a bit riskier, having somebody with their hands in your mouth that uh, breathing right over you, that may be an asymptomatic COVID positive person, you know, it just makes it a little bit riskier. And so someone might say, you know, I think I'm going to wait. I'm not going to go to the dentist for eight months. So both of those things would lead us to potentially um, just demand uh, fewer dental services. And as that happens around the country, a bunch of dentist's offices will say, gee, maybe I don't need to bring as many people back. Or some of their workers won't come back because they're going to say, this is also a risky job. Either way, we see that as, as permanent job destruction because we'll see a dental office that maybe used to have uh, 20 uh, hygienists that ends up you know, only scaling up to having, say, 18 hygienists or 16 hygienists by the end of the year. Because of the situation that we're in right now, theoretically, if we do have a health answer, if there is a vaccine, does that shorten this recession then? A vaccine absolutely does shorten the recession because, you know, one of the things that we see is people's behavior will be about adjusting to a level of risk. I outlined sort of three forces you should think about the way we use new technology, as well as the pandemic risk, as well as the income decline. So a vaccine deals with the pandemic risk that should also help with the income decline. But again, if public policy helps support people's incomes, then when a vaccine shows up, we'll be in a much better place. 
But I do think it's important to realize there are some industries that are never going to look like they looked in uh, January of 2020. Take, for example, retail trade. People who worked in physical stores, that is a job that's going to be really hard to bring everybody back to. All three of those forces I outlined says we need fewer people working in stores. Mm. People have gotten used to shopping online. Um, People who were reluctant to do it have been sort of forced to do it during the pandemic. Uh, People have been forced to try out all sorts of delivery services. Some of it will stick. So the changing, just changing preferences and developing new habits means people go to stores less. They're also a new level of risk going to the store. And so that means people are going to go to stores less. And people are going to have less money to spend in the stores, which also means going to stores less. This is one of the reasons why there's so much concern for things like, you know, the apparel stores in our shopping malls or on our main streets is they're fighting three forces, which are all going to lead to fewer people walking in the door. Betsy Stevenson, thank you so much for this really insightful conversation. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. It's a joy to talk with you. Betsy Stevenson is a professor of public policy and economics at the Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. That's all for us today. A quick shout out to the squad that weaves this audio tapestry every week. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob and Jose Olivares are our associate producers. Polly Urungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant and mayor of the Takeaway Zoom Village. Jay Cowett edited from home this week, while the fearless Debbie Daughtry was in studio in New York to board up the show. Vince Fairchild was on site all week as well, directing. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. If you missed anything or you want to listen back again, check out our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts and leave us a rating while you're there. And of course, call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.